I'm Trevor Elio, and this is Conceptually Speaking, a show that's all about engaging experts in dialogue about the concepts and patterns that help us understand our world. Each week, I chat with guests from a variety of fields to better understand how their cognitive processes and social practices help them navigate complexity and solve wicked problems in their domain. Whether chatting with academics or YouTubers or educational leaders or neuroscientists, every episode is an invitation to explore meaningful questions and reconceptualize what we think and feel about education. This week, I'm joined by Matthew Slocum, a secondary school teacher specializing in educational design and technology, and a doctoral student and researcher at the Center for Educational Neuroscience at the University of London. Matt's research interests relate to the development of children's reasoning, the role of conceptual change, and transfer in analogical reasoning. Matt and I connected during the early days of COVID while I was working on learning the transfers with Julie, Krista, and Kayla, and he put us on to some fantastic research into the role of analogical reasoning in conceptual change and learning transfer. And much to my joy, he helped us realize analogies are so much more than fanciful things used by poets. They are the essence of how we make meaning. There's a really lovely quote by a journalist called James Geary that sums it up quite nicely. And he says that the only way we have of learning something new is by comparing it to something we already know. And, um, and that comparison is by analogy. So get ready to accommodate and assimilate some new knowledge into your pre-existing schema. Let's dive in. Uh, welcome, Matt. I'm, I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. My pleasure. Thanks you, uh, for inviting me to your wonderful podcast. So we've been uh, trying to get, get linked up since um, uh, early in the pandemic, um, since uh, we first sort of exchanged emails. Um, and for anybody who follows me on Twitter, you'll definitely have seen me retweeting Matt's work uh, about um, everything from analogical reasoning to conceptual change and transfer. So uh, Matt, for, for people who haven't heard of your work or haven't seen uh, the many times I've retweeted you, could you give us a little overview? Sure. So the, the research that um, I'm interested in is uh, centered around understanding how um, analogy or the process of analogy affords us to learn in, in lots of different ways. So whether that's forming categories by um, understanding that different instances of, of knowledge are analogous to each other and we can group them together to form categories or whether it's forming analogies and transferring information from, from one domain of knowledge to another or um, the use of analogy in creative thinking and, and the kind of creative um, products and thinking that children might be doing in, in education as well. So it's all around analogies and the different ways that, that they can be used and, and how children's analogical abilities change across development as well. And I feel like your area of research is something where there are uh, a lot of misconceptions just in terms of like what domains are and, and how they operate and sort of maybe being seen as siloed. Um, so could, could you talk a little bit about like, what does it look like to use um, analogical reasoning to transfer information from one context to another or one domain to another? Could you break that down a little bit? Um, you know, obviously anyone listening to this podcast is familiar with the fact that learning the transfers is a really big part. Um, of the ideas that we talk about and, and the work that we do here. So if you could go into a little bit more depth on the sort of cognitive mechanisms behind that, I think that would be great. Yeah, so so transfer is something that the mind is doing all the time, whether we explicitly acknowledge it or not. So when we're walking down um, an unfamiliar street, for example, we're transferring knowledge from uh, that's that's been learned from, from all the familiar experiences um, and transferring that to make inferences about you know, what might be happening in that street or something like that. Or you might be in a different country, for example, and you're walking down a street and you see a, um, a set of three lights with different colours on them at the end of, edge of a road and some cars waiting behind it. And then from your own experience of traffic lights in your, in your, in your, where you live, you might be able to infer the function of these, these strange kind of traffic lights that look a little bit different to yours and, and, and do this kind of what might be classed as within domain uh, transfer. Um, and so that's one way that, we, that we're that we kind of doing trans, you could think of that as sort of everyday transfer, if you like, Make, making these inferences about the world around us based on the similarity between the world around us and our previous experience. And then there's something called far transfer, which is most commonly um, seen when we're using um, explicit analogies. And so, um, for example, in education, you might be teaching about um, the structure of a, a biological cell and, and, the, and the functions of the different organelle, organelles within that cell. And you might use an analogy such as, well, um, 
the mitochondria well they're, they're like the batteries of a cell or something like that and then you can take your knowledge from the domain of electronics and your remote control that you have at home and then transfer that to um, a different domain which is biological cells so so there's this notion of near and, and, and far transfer but they both sort of operate under the same principle which is you're forming a category between these these two domains of knowledge and, and once you form that category by analogy, you can then start kind of shifting knowledge from one domain to the other. So, for example, the the um, biological cell analogy example I've just given, well, that's that's based on a, a, a an, an implicit analogy that that batteries are objects within a um, container, which um, which is an electrical device that let's say it's a remote control, and these batteries um, serve some function within this electrical device. And the actual analogy, the first analogy you're forming is a spatial analogy. You know, the cell is also a container and it has objects inside it. So you form this spatial analogy and then you can start transferring information across. So the kind of mechanism through which this happens is by forming this these analogies. So you, another way we describe an analogy is relational similarity, understanding that that these uh, two, two kind of bodies of knowledge are similar by relation. And then we can kind of transfer knowledge from one to the other. And this... This process of iteratively shifting knowledge between kind of categories and joining cate- uh, objects together, joining uh, bodies of knowledge together and forming categories out of them is these are the kind of mechanisms that allow this iterative construction of conceptual change as we learn. Yeah, I, I love that. And uh, I recall um, we got a, an early draft of one of your uh, research papers. Um, I think it's um, published somewhere now. Um, but uh, one of the things that stood out to me was just the idea that, and you, you sort of were just hitting on it, that, you know, analogical reasoning isn't just a, a, nif- a nifty trick that we do occasionally. It really feels like it is the, it is at the core of our cognition. Um, and, you know, before encountering your work, you know, I, I had read like Lakoff and Johnson and sort of like the, the idea of the power of, of metaphorical thinking and, and how it frames a lot of stuff. And, you know, I'd sort of seen it as a function of language. Um, so it's, it was really interesting to hear you talk about, it, you know, no, it's actually like a function deeply embedded within our sort of cognitive architecture. Architecture. Um, and, and with that in mind, what do you think are some of the biggest implications in like a classroom specific context um, for, you know, the, it, I guess, the more research that's emerging about the role of cognition in terms of how we think about presenting learning and organizing learning and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, no, I think that's a, a really good point that we usually encounter analogies in their explicit form and they're verbalized. But, um, but it's, underneath actually most of the analogical learning we do is implicit and we don't realize it's taking place there's a really lovely quote by a journalist called James Geary that sums it up quite nicely and he says that the only way we have of learning something new is by comparing it to something we already know and um, and that comparison is by analogy um, or metaphor or these are quite similar terms in a way and so well one implication this has for classroom practice is that we can think about how the mind is using analogies to to form categories or to make these um, inferences by transfer and then extend that into the actual um, practices that we're using in the classroom. So, for example, one of the functions of, of forming analogies is to um, is to construct these abstract categories. So if I'll give you an example that um, in uh, you might have some knowledge related to bank accounts. Um, and you might understand that the amount of interest you earn in your bank account is is uh, is calculated as a percentage of your the overall amount of money that you have in your account. And so, the more money you have in your account, the more interest you're going to earn. Um, and when you earn more interest, that increases the size of your the, your your bank account. So, the size of the bank account and the interest earned are both the cause and the effect. So the size of the bank account causes more interest. The more interest you have causes the size of the bank account to increase. And so that's a body of knowledge in a particular domain that we might have to do with bank accounts. If you compare that to a separate body of knowledge, say with population um, geography, you might um, understand that the size of of a country's population is related to the number of births you have every year. So the, the greater the size of the population, the greater the number of births that take place every year. And likewise, the when you have more births, that increases the size of the population. So you have the same um, analogous scenario as in the bank account where 
the size of the population causes um, a higher number of births to take place, but a higher number of births to take taking place also causes the population to increase. And so you can compare these two situations um, and understand that they're analogous to each other and categorize them together. And then by using language, you can kind of extract this shared relational structure. And we, we could call this a, a positive feedback loop. And, um, and so we formed a, a new category, an abstract category that's defined by relations called a, a positive feedback loop. And so we can use this positive feedback loop category to then understand why when you put a microphone close to a speaker, it starts screeching and feeding back and these kind of things. And so that's the kind of process that's taking place in the mind is this comparison process by joining knowledge together that's analogous to each other. And that's a, a relatively complex example. I've given other examples you might use is all of the verbs that we learn are abstract relational categories that are extracted from lots of instances of throwing or kicking or drinking and things like that. And they all involve this comparison of lots of different um, examples of the same um, of the same relation taking place. So if that's taking place in the mind, then one thing that we can do in the classroom is support children in their ability to compare multiple examples. So instead of teaching a particular concept with one example, providing multiple examples of that of that in different contexts then allows children to to um, see the similarities between these between these different um, uh, examples and extract uh, the the shared relational structure from all of them. And sometimes we, I think we often do this in, in in the classroom. So mathematics is a really good example where children will get lots of um, mathematical problems of the same, uh, using the same kind of mathematical function and you can compare and you extract these relational structures from them um, but we use it in all kinds of subjects as well so in my subject design and technology we might be thinking about different kind of types of processes manufacturing processes um, and providing different examples of the same manufacturing process in lots of different contexts and asking children to compare them is is supporting this kind of analogical extraction that takes place. So another example might be in English where you're kind of learning about different narrative structures. So comparing different texts with, with different narrative or the same narrative structure allows you to kind of extract this, this abstract structure from both of them. And you might compare to different uh, examples as well. So um, you can sort of divide these categories into, into subcategories so, and so on and so forth. So that's one example of, of how you can um, use these kind of ideas of analogical reasoning in the classroom is by just providing children with explicit examples to compare and, and guiding them to compare them as well. So, you know, using like guiding, giving them what I, what I like to call sort of attentional scaffolds. So, so if I was, um, for example, if you were comparing, if you were doing some kind of analysis on uh, Animal Farm, George Orwell's book, Animal Farm or something, and, and comparing it to the Russian Revolution, and having sort of some kind of di diagrammatic representation on the board of um, the similarities between these two, between the story and, and the events, and then guiding children's attention back and forth, highlighting the similarities and differences is, can be a, a powerful way to support children in doing this sort of abstraction process. Because it's quite difficult doing abstraction. It's it's uh, yeah. the brain's a little bit lazy sometimes, and <laughs> and, and and doesn't always want to. Uh, engage in the cognitive effort that it takes to kind of abstract these these uh, concepts from it. So. And, and that intersects with with a few different pieces of research that um, I've been engaging with. The, the first is um, Randy Engel's work on expansive framing and just the idea that if you want students to transfer their understanding to future contexts, the more that, you know, you can do to um, present learning and, and understanding in a way that isn't just situated in one space, but but but, you know, trans potentially transcends context or time or place or, or space, you know, just that action of presenting learning and not saying you need to know this for the test. But, you know, if you're talking about persuasion, you know, here's one context or domain where persuasion is operating. Here's another one. Here's another one. And that act of expanding uh, uh, the frame in which you present information, you know, in addition to bringing in those other examples, um, makes really big difference. And, and the way that you were talking about text structure um, aligns with some of the stuff I've been looking at for genre theory. Um, in terms of teaching students like how to how to write or construct an essay. And, um, you know, oftentimes when it comes to writing, uh, we use it as a vehicle to assess students understanding of, of uh, literature. And, you know, they'll write like two or three really big essays a year. And that's all they'll really see. 
Um, and I've been, you know, experimenting with and a lot of like uh, the studies in transfer of writing and um, genre theory suggests that the best thing to do is to expose students to a ton of different examples of, um, you know, a, a particular genre. In my case right now, we're looking at like literary criticism. So students are seeing a bunch of examples and we're um, mapping out the text structure in terms of how it's organized and highlighting when evidence is used or when claims are being made. Um, and by seeing all those examples, um, I'm finding students are much more confident um, in writing because they are aware of the resources available to them through which they can they can make meaning or, or to write or to, to make a claim about a text. Um, and it goes against, you know, so much of how I used to teach writing, which was really like, maybe I give one example or I would just say, you know, you've written a paper before, like, let's let's, just, let's get started. Um, and it, it's, it was really powerful um, just just bringing that in there. Um, and uh, I was interested in the, I was watching the video uh, uh, lecture that you had um, from the Center of Educational Neuroscience. And you talked about how a lot of the examples are in uh, um, science and mathematics. And as, as, a, as a humanities person, it was interesting to me um, because I see so many applications in the humanities. Um, and, you know, I just finished up teaching um, Arthur Miller's uh, The Crucible. And uh, we had a day where we looked at the sort of relationship between fear hysteria and power dynamics. And we first looked at that within, you know, the, the context of Salem during the Salem witch trials. And then we looked at um, the Red Scare and McCarthyism. And then we looked at the Satanic Panic um, because I have students who love the, the TV show Stranger Things. And there was a whole riff on the 80s Satanic Panic and Dungeons and Dragons. And um, I found that, you know, the more that I did that, the more that my students were picking up on those dynamics in other spaces. You know, we'd look at current events. Um, and it sort of is this virtuous cycle where the more you know, uh, examples or knowledge structures that students file into that sort of folder, the more that they're able to then notice it in, in future contexts. So um, I just uh, am, am drawing all sorts of connections to things that I'm exploring and playing with um, in my research and in my classroom with, with stuff that you're doing. Um, uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm curious um, about how this might sound or seem, I don't want to say counterintuitive, but, but maybe um, contrary to the way that learning is often um, presented and framed when it comes to, you know, operationalizing cognitive science um, in that a lot of it is sort of focused on memory and retrieval, which are obviously, you know, parts of our, our cognitive architecture. But but this seems to be suggesting that maybe these domains aren't these rigid categories, um, maybe as, uh, as we as we think. So could you could you elaborate a little bit on on how this work might complicate our understanding of how cognitive science can be used in education? Yeah, I mean, I think there's quite a few things in there, really, like so just to come back to the, the point you were making about these using different examples, that I think a, a, perhaps a good rule of thumb is that you know, the, the, the broader the examples that you're, you're providing children, the more abstract and transferable this kind of concept becomes that you can then use in, in different contexts. Yeah, so there's lots of things I think you could say about cognitive science and and how it's used at the moment. I think one of the difficulties with using cognitive science in education is that really what's useful for teachers is, is kind of these generalizable findings that you can use in lots of different areas. Um, and there's been some really uh, powerful, useful kind of uh, concepts that have come from, from cognitive science in terms of you know, retrieval practice and, and space learning and, and and um, you know, not thinking about overloading children's working memory, these kind of really valuable kind of concepts. Um, but, uh, and they're very generalizable. You can use those in lots of different contexts. Although one, I, find, I think one of the difficulties is that, that how children learn is, is really complicated and education is really complicated. And, and there's a lot of very valuable strategies and practices that teachers know and also that could come from cognitive science that aren't generalizable just because of the complex nature of learning and, and education and individual differences. And, and, um, and so sometimes I think some of that is, is sometimes lost in, 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 um, in the application of cognitive science, not because it's not seen as valuable, but I think what is seen as valuable or what, what has, what has been very popular are these like broad generalizable kind of, ideas that you can apply in lots of different ways um the other point you made was about having these kind of distinct domains of knowledge you know there's an interesting question about how distinct 
actually are these domains of knowledge you know they they sort of we, we teach them in, in in different subjects and we um we give them different names and and um we, and they, they they appear very much like separate bodies of knowledge but I, I kind of like to think of it a bit like um a bit like rhizome plants so like a mm. rhizome plant yeah. is um it's a particular kind of plant that lives um partly underground and partly above ground so bamboo is a is a is a rhizome and above the ground you have all these separate um trees that that, that look like they're separate from each other but actually once you dig underneath it they're all connected to each other um and i think that's kind of similar to to knowledge in a way in that we have these separate bodies of um what we might call domain specific knowledge to do with you know geography and and English and, and science, but um, and they're kind of above the ground, like these bamboo plants. But when you sort of dig underneath them, they're actually there's a lot of um, shared concepts between all of them to do with space and 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 um, and structure, and um, and that's where all the kind of transfer takes place, you know. So so something that I think could be is really useful to understand as, as a kind of teacher is that you know perhaps these domains of knowledge are not so um distinct from each other as they might appear and and actually kind of digging un- under in, into the into that knowledge a little bit and thinking about the structure of the relationships of a of a story or of a of a particular scientific theory or a, a mathematical theorem um reveals that this kind of shared substructure underneath them and that's when you can start doing kind of interesting transfer stuff and and I think you know as we were saying that what the thing that really makes that visible is by having the opportunity to do lots of comparisons although one of the kind of constraints that um in education is is the amount that you need to learn for a particular exam or something like that Mm -hmm. and 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 so there's this trade-off between, um, you could think of it as a trade-off between the sort of breadth and depth of knowledge you might have. And so sometimes I've, I've spoken to science teachers in the UK and say, you know, we've got, we've got a, a lot of content to cover now, so we don't have the opportunity to compare lots of examples of electrolysis in different things or lots of different, it's kind of, you know, this is the lesson or a couple of lessons where we're going to learn about this and then we're going to be moving on. And so, and so I think that provides a bit of a, a constraint on our ability to play with these concepts, compare them to concepts within the domain and across domains and, and, and have these very flexible transfer, uh, transferable abstract concepts that, that we might want children to have. Perhaps. Yeah. And, and, and do, would you, do you find that, or, or does the research seem to suggest that when there is an emphasis solely on, you know, maybe a, the factual or topical level of knowledge, as opposed to moving or abstracting to the conceptual, even if students accumulate more factual or topical knowledge, that doesn't necessarily mean that that knowledge leads to further ability to transfer, right? Um, does that, is, is that kind of like what the finding is? Because I, I, it's just sort of my feeling that, you know, in our effort to cover more, um, you know, it is so situated um, in, in, in context dependent in, in which the, the way the students learn that their understanding and their learning is locked to that context because they never explore the deeper knowledge structures that sort of like transcend different um, contexts. And the, the example that I always use with, with um, you know, talking to English teachers is, you know, there was a year where I, I taught To Kill a Mockingbird. It was like in our curriculum and um, only teaching the text, um, you know, if I were to ask the students, like, what does the uh, mockingbird symbolize? And they'd be like, innocence. And I'd be like, well, what's innocence? And like, it's the mockingbird <laughs> because their understanding of what this concept was, was so locked to this one text. We didn't, they didn't have a deeper insight into what innocence was as, as a concept they, they wouldn't be able to recognize it in future texts because to them it was locked to that text. So is, would you say the same is true in, if you're looking at math or science or are, are there limitations to covering more facts and topics at the um, expense of transcending or abstracting out to that conceptual level? Yeah, I think there's, I think there's a few points that I make regarding that, 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 that you could sort of draw on these broader cognitive principles. So the first is, is, is the idea that when we're learning about something new, we're learning a lot of contextual information with that as well. And, and that is a, presents a sort of barrier to transfer, to transfer it to different contexts because 
you need to sort of form this similarity comparison and if all that contextual information that is um uh, tethered to a particular instance of learning isn't similar in a in a different kind of um context then it makes it more difficult to transfer across which which speaks to this idea of comparison which we've talked about and i guess the other thing i would say is transfer doesn't come free with knowledge i think you know that um knowing how to do something doesn't mean that you can do it as well mm. so for example there are a lot yeah. of you know the, the the number of uh dusty gym membership cards attests to the the fact that you know knowing that going to the gym is good for you <laughs> doesn't necessarily mean you're going to go there Guilty. it actually takes practice and habits and and you need to be able to um inhibit the compulsion the 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 desire to i don't know make a cup of coffee and, and lay on the sofa when you get home instead of going out for a run or something like that and so like transfer is kind of similar as well if you want if you getting children to be creative with their knowledge involves kind of practice and putting them in the situation where they have to transfer from one to the other um so i think design is a, is a really interesting example of that in a way i like i think it's really looking at how kind of creative practitioners go about their business is a really um useful um provides really useful insights for kind of just how the mind is, is working as well so designers for example are uh, their whole shtick is taking inspiration taking taking knowledge from one domain and then transferring that into a new domain to produce some kind of creative design solution to a problem or something like that and that they don't they don't that doesn't happen just by just knowing about those domains they take a very strategic process to it you know so they, um for example they might have a, a, they might be looking at natural forms or something and 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 then breaking those natural forms down and, and thinking about well what what's the actual each of those components and and what function do those components um do within the, the actual broader function of this natural form um and they're sort of doing this very critical analysis of of the body of knowledge which they're going to transfer and then um and then they start designing at an abstract level thinking about the function of what something has to do so for example you might have um uh you might, like in a, in a particular design context remember maybe you want to design a, a mobile phone for a for a mountain climber or something like that and then you might think about the actual specific functions or the unique functions that this mobile phone has to have um say perhaps it's going to well in the environment of climbing mountains perhaps it might drop or it's going to get knocked easily or something like that and then once you kind of isolate these 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 functions that it has to do then you can start sort of looking at your body of knowledge and well what other what other examples have i got of a of some kind of some kind of component that acts to protect that, that what it is around and all oh, there's some interesting turtle shells and and know kind of balloons that automatically expand when they hit something or something like that and then and then then you can start transferring across so there's this very um effortful procedure that takes place that in a sense sort of bypasses the the brain's kind of instinct uh, instinctive kind of easy option of just thinking about the kind of surface features of these kind of inspirational objects or something like that so i guess that speaks to the idea that you know transfer doesn't always come for free and and you you need to sort of put children in in these kind of contexts to be able to to practice doing transfer in the same way that you need to be able to practice going to the gym and and until you kind of habitually sort of bypass this desire to you know slouch on the sofa when you get back and and does that does that kind of get to what you're talking about there i think yeah yeah, yeah. And does that also speak to the importance of, of application of knowledge? Um, I, I, there, uh, Arthur Appleby is a curriculum theorist piece of his work I love, and he talks about like knowledge in action. So it's like knowledge, of course, students need to know things, need to learn these knowledge structures, facts, topic skills is important, but it's, it's when that is put into action 
um, that, you know, their ability to apply in future instances, like really come to the fore because they've taken, you know, this ab these abstract or theoretical ideas and it's been immersed in the messy, you know, nuance and, right. and unique aspect of one like particular context. So like, do you feel like that's, um, is, is it the active application in the, the messy nuance of a single con or context that encourages that? Is that sort of the practice that you're speaking to across, like, obviously, like, you know, in a more habitual way? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, so I think a really uh, useful concept to, to understand how the kind of mind is representing knowledge is this notion of like context dependency. And so if you think about the concepts that you of, of school, for mm -hmm. example, and all the kind of information that might make up that concept, it's going to be incredibly rich. You know, most people spend, I know, about 12 years of their life when they're a child in school. And some of us work in school and in, in, in different kind of respects. And we, our children go to school and these kind of things. So we have this incredibly rich knowledge structure related to the concept of school. And, and when I, but when I say to a colleague, oh, I'll, I'll see you in school tomorrow, um, you don't represent all of that knowledge structure. You just represent an aspect of it that is relevant to that particular context at that time. And, hmm. and that, this is what makes the kind of brain very quick and fluid that we just sort of like frugally represent knowledge. Um, and to be able to kind of, that's very easy to do when you have a, 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 um, a rich understanding of that knowledge base and you practice it in lots of different ways as well. Um, in, when we're teaching children, often the concepts that they're learning, by definition, they're going to be very, they're, they're new and they're sort of fragile and they're not embedded within these kind of broader um, conceptual frameworks that um, because because they're new and, and that makes it very difficult to think about them in different contexts in a way. And so if you don't sort of provide different contexts, then they become sort of wedded to that context and the particular aspect of that concept is what's going to be represented when they hear that yeah. word or see that see that kind of um, the instance that they learned that concept in. So it's this this kind of comparison in in lots of different kind of contexts is what kind of decouples it from all that contextual information and 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 providing them with tasks that then allows them to kind of think about that concept in different ways and how does that apply to this situation provides this kind of practice and builds up a different body of knowledge to do with the kind of strategic processing of concepts and things like that. Totally. And it, it aligns with before the, the show started, we were, I had mentioned this briefly that I find it interesting that if you if you look at this two sort of like uh, warring factions, um, you know, whether it's in edu Twitter or, or elsewhere um, of very fact rich, knowledge heavy or 21st century skills, both of those discourses seem to ignore the importance of context. So it's either generalizable skills that you can teach in one situation or context, just assume that they apply to another without there being any variation or nuance, or the idea that, you know, we don't need to pay attention to context right. or application because the kids need a lot of knowledge before that even matters. And, and neither one of them, I, I feel like situates learners in a context with the idea that the knowledge that they have might give them a springboard for their learning, but it's not like this, oh, I was, you know, I'm really good at critical thinking when I'm reading a literary text, but if you, you know, put a word problem in front of me and say, think critically about it, I'm in, I'm in trouble. Right. Well, I guess it's that, yeah, that's a, a really interesting point. And sometimes there's this view that, that, you know, you need to have a certain body of knowledge or you should have a certain amount of knowledge before you can start thinking critically, mm. or you need yeah. a level of expertise, in, in, which is often defined by some kind of I'm not sure what sure level of knowledge, but I think something that's often missing from those um, when when people talk about these kind of ideas is that yeah is is the context. So so I'm I'm a, I'm an expert at kicking a football in a football net <laughs> as long as there's no goalie and I'm about ten meters away. I'm a, I'm I'm very skilled at that. You know I could probably do that a hundred times and get it in every time and. So my body of knowledge to do with footballs uh, and football provides me with expertise in certain contexts, but in other contexts, as soon as <laughs> someone's trying to stop me to yeah. do that, like I'm a novice. Um, and uh, so this idea of, of uh, expertise being dependent on knowledge, well, yeah, it's, it's, it's entirely true, but there's another part that's missing, uh, uh, missing from that equation, and it's you know, the context in which you're trying to apply that knowledge. And I think the same is true for, for critical thinking as well. So recently I was um, 
I was with some year five pupils in the UK. So these are nine-year-old children and they were learning about uh, material properties. So they're learning about different types of material, wood and, and metal and, and, and um, different optical properties like being reflective and transparent and, and, and these kind of uh, sort of different kind of prop like material and, and physical properties. And they had some instruction about these different properties. And then they're going around the classroom sort of trying to with a with a sort of you know clipboard and a little um uh table to fill in and investigating all of the kind of objects in the classroom and trying to identify what the different materials are um from their from their properties and thinking about the actual function of that material why that material has been chosen so they're these are nine-year-old children who are thinking critically yeah. um about material properties um and so I think it's sort of analogous to this idea of expertise that yeah you need some a, a certain level of knowledge to think critically but it depends what you're thinking thinking critically about and where and where your the orientation of your kind of critical thought is aimed at um and so sometimes i think that's um perhaps left out of this this kind of debate about you know how much knowledge do you need to be creative or yeah. critically crit crit thinking yeah no that that's such a that's such a good point and um that that question i i've been phrasing it to myself um, in like, what is minimum viable expertise that somebody needs in order to do thing A, B, or C? Um, and I, I do feel like a lot of times that idea of, of, of leaning on the research on expertise as a way to sort of erect barriers and, and say, oh, well, the, students can't do that yet because they don't have the requisite knowledge because they aren't experts, as opposed to like it being this fluid thing. There isn't like this expertise meter that it's very clear, you know, when that is. And right. I, I think a lot of times it just becomes a defensive, more, you know, traditional uh, didactic um, kind of methods. But there, there's actually a, a really interesting study that I saw um, fairly recently that was talking about how they, they had a, um, a, a historian like who you know, a fully fledged scholar, a graduate student, and an, and an undergrad student, um, and they gave them a sort of historical uh, um, event to look at. And the 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 actual historian, it was in a, a field of, of knowledge or a period of history that he was not his expertise at all. And the graduate and undergraduate student had had just uh, like they had just learned a whole unit on that. So the, they, in terms of the factual and topical knowledge they had, was was way way higher, but. Um, because the uh, the historian knew the sort of like uh, disciplinary practices, right, uh, uh, of the of, of what it means to be a historian, he was able to reason more deeply about the event than the than the undergrad student and the, the graduate student, even though he had less factual and topical knowledge. Um, and that kind of speaks to, uh, you know, work that I'm really passionate about and my, my dissertation is exploring this as well, um, which is what are the cognitive processes and social practices of different disciplines and and how can we organize our learning around those so instead of telling students right. you know you don't know enough about this historical event you can't name you know every treaty that was signed and every battle that occurred in relation to world war one so you can't think critically about it but instead thinking about okay what are things that historians look at well they look at you know natural resources they look at power they look at nationalism and if students are are, are thinking about these things they're thinking like a historian factual knowledge you know plays a role but it, it doesn't become a barrier because they already are entering into a situation and I know that in your work, you talk a lot about um, tending to certain um, ideas or information, guiding attention to the salient features that, that help students make sense of things. Um, mm -hmm. So I just it, that's just a really interesting line of like disciplinary uh, literacy is a very like it's not really look based on much like cognitive science. But I'm feeling like these two bodies of knowledge are interfacing in, in some really interesting ways. Right. No, absolutely. I think there's a lot of value in, in thinking about how um, people do things in practice that reveal a lot about the mind yeah. and and how um how we learn and, and and that that is sometimes best understood by kind of thinking about how these practitioners do this so there's a the, thinking about this you know how much kind of expertise do you need question there's a like one of my favorite examples of sort of creative transfer is is um the uh, development of the london underground map and um so the London Underground map is is a, is a map of all the tube stations and tube lines in 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 London, and um, and it's sort of held up as this you know one of the a really important piece of graphic design um, uh, that sort of was a kind of paradigm shift in cartography 
um back when it was, was developed and it's been exported all over the world lots of different underground systems all over the world use this kind of map and you know much to the annoyance of, of some graphic designers it wasn't created by a graphic designer it was, <laughs> it was created by a, a electronic en uh, engineer called really? harry beck and you know harry beck was a he was in the business he worked for london Underground, and he was in the business of drawing schematic diagrams um and he transferred this to this domain that he didn't know a lot about cartography yeah. and which resulted in a, a really creative outcome um so so he didn't know a lot about like cartography but he still managed to produce one of the, the most lauded pieces of graphic <laughs> design and, and cartography so yeah no that's great and, and again that speaks to the false dichotomy between uh, the idea that create creativity is this generalizable skill or a muscle that you can work out or that it's requisite like depending on how much you know, domain knowledge you have. And, and really in uh, um, the Medici effect by Franz Johansson is like one of my favorite books. And it talks about innovation is when you smash together different like discourses right. or different concepts from fields that seemingly don't really have any like relation to each other. And it's like that sort of that sort of playful, you know, borrowing of from different domains and bringing them together. That's what, like where the real secret sauce with, with, with creativity and critical thinking. Absolutely. Which is, yeah. And, and so the, we've mentioned animal farm before and that that's you know like george orwell created that by forming this very elaborate analogy between the events of the russian russian revolution and the structure of a farm and um, <laughs> yeah. and 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 so these are very two very different domains of knowledge and and um and i think if you if you kind of think about what what's what's happened there well he's sort of like removed a lot of the information that we would usually associate with farms and, and sort of transferred all the kind of roles and intentions and, and, and dynamics from the Russian revolution into this sort of farm context. And, and it sort of speaks to this idea where, which we were just talking about, about these kind of like merging of these concepts together by analogy. But um, it also sort of like highlights the idea that, creativity sort of involves like removing some of the existing knowledge from from a particular domain and and and, and so the more you kind of adapt the target domain that you're kind of you know smashing this kind of source domain into the sort of more creative you, you could say it becomes kind of thing would you say that that speaks to a potential problem for over specialization where when a, a person is, is attempting to tackle a problem um, they aren't able to don't have access to other discourses, other bodies of knowledge, other structures to bring in because they're the way that they look at the problem is through a, a hyper specialized lens. It's certainly beneficial to have sort of different bodies of knowledge and and uh, for creativity and be in the business of trying to find links between them. It's, it seems to be how kind of creative people do their do their business. So yeah, this this whole idea of, of inspiration that, that creative people use is is the idea of taking knowledge from another domain um, and using that to inform the kind of ideas that they're constructing within a different domain. So so they're actually um, effortfully going about trying to learn about knowledge in a different domain. So so. I think I, I guess whether it's a problem or not depends on depends on um, what you yeah. want to do. Yeah, thermo thermonuclear engineers probably shouldn't be too creative. <laughs> <If they're> too <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I, you you'd certainly want some uh, you know a, a surgeon to have a specialist body of <laughs> knowledge sure, about surgery, sure. wouldn't you? <laughs> you want them to be kind of. Uh, I think I'll just, you know, use some poetry yeah. to guide my life today. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but maybe they'll, you know, that's people generate innovative ideas generally from a different angle than they do. And that comes from a different body knowledge. Yeah. Um, so uh, one or two questions before we wrap up. Um, this idea of of knowledge structures and seeing past the sort of maybe superficial features of of different um, instances, it's kind of reminding me of um, um, systems thinking a little bit. You know, you're talking about feedback, positive feedback loops. Um, my sophomores in my school have a seminar course, and they're they're learning systems thinking right now, and I, I found it really useful to like, okay, like how can I how can we look at the the power dynamic between two or three characters and an institution they're in in, in literature and understand what you know positive feedback loops are there. So does that does systems thinking has has that entered into the the research at all in terms of conceptualizing what knowledge structures are and how they can be taught to children? 
the, um, I'm not I'm not too sure to be honest is, yeah. it, is it but but uh, from my understanding of systems thinking yeah it's it, it, it um perhaps and perhaps you could uh, elaborate on that a little bit is that it's thinking about the kind of um the sort of causal and relational systems of of, of, of different bodies of knowledge so yeah exactly I think you know you can think about concepts and or schemas or mental models in terms of systems you know whether it's a whether it's a a, a democratic political system or whether it's a um whether it's a kind of atom and the system of kind of objects that that, that, are, that compose an atom or whether it's um the system of protagonists and antagonists and 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 um and events that you might find in a, in a story or something like that so i think it's that definitely it sounds like it's be, it would be really useful in terms of orientating attention towards these kind of relations that that, that are often hidden that underpin our kind of understanding of things definitely yeah no that's um, why i i would i'd be curious to explore that a little bit more and i know that one of the practices that I use in, in my class a lot and um, that we uh, talk about in our book is, is concept mapping um, and just having, right. you know, I'll, I'll have students brainstorm thematic concepts, literary concepts that we've been exploring in class and um, put them onto sticky notes and then put them onto a whiteboard and then draw like the sort of causal relations between those different concepts um, and, uh, and then apply that or think about that in um, like current events. And, and sort of see right. how, you know, these themes and ideas and these these knowledge structures that exist in literature are also playing out in similar ways um, uh, in the world or the way that, um, you know, uh, authors or designers are, are using language or using um, visuals or audio or multimedia um, and how that plays out. And, you know, TikToks or Snapchats that students are, are constructing, composing. And um, I think that it's a really good way to kind of bring all of these things that we've talked about together, the idea of comparing across instances, the idea of, of visualizing or mapping or seeing these these causal relations. And it's just, it Absolutely. feels like, yeah, I'd be curious to explore that um, a little bit more. Yeah, I think a lot of, so a lot of these sort of relationships that, that underpin our understanding of, of different bodies of knowledge are often causal relationships. Um, and, and so they're, they're hidden. You could, you didn't see a physical relationship between um the sort of sunshine and, and a and a, and a plant blooming over over a period of time um and so this is this abstract understanding so being able to explicitly um express that in in a diagram makes it much easier for children to understand those kind of relationships and it also makes it much easier then to be able to compare that to a different kind of cycle or something like that and there's a few findings that in the analogy literature that that, that um, sort of provide some interesting guidelines for how to do that. So, for example, if you are um, comparing to, um, let's say, you're comparing two different um, uh, life cycles of, of a, a plant or an animal or something like that, or or um, and and you have um, different kind of elements in that and different relationships. That so some of the work in the analogy literature. Um, kind of points towards that if you sort of spatially align these kind of elements that are that share the same relational role um, um, it makes it easier to sort of map from one mm. to the other you know so if you were kind of comparing uh, so recently when I was I was teaching some uh, doing some kind of exam practice for with some children and we were um, I was giving them kind of different examples of, of, of answers that they can give to these these sort of essay questions and we were highlighting um different points they had to they had to uh they had to kind of give in in, in their answers and and sort of having these next to each other so they, they were given a, a sort of like a grade three answer and a grade six answer and a grade nine answer and then having them next to each other and and highlighting which part of the answer was providing uh, the knowledge uh, of their particular concept and which part of the answer was um, displaying their ability to apply that in the context of the question. So giving those the same kind of color, for example, and, and spatially aligning them allowed it much much easier for them to compare and see the kind of similarities and differences between them. So 
you can do the same with these kind of diagrams that we're talking about or concept maps and and or, or maps that might map out a particular causal structure if you sort of spatially align them on the board it's just providing this kind of attentional scaffold that that supports children's ability to sort of map from one to the other and if you use sort of similar colors for similar say you maybe you maybe you've got maps of different stories and so you might have the protagonist is the same color in both of them or something like that or um uh, the antagonist is a different color but the same across both of these different stories there's kind of very simple strategies that you can use to do with like spatial alignment and using perceptual features that that supports children's ability to understand these underlying systems yeah and that i mean that uh, aligns perfectly with what i'm doing right now with both uh, the freshman softwares i'm teaching where we're visually mapping out um our literary essays um and they do it on jamboard some of them do it on sticky notes um this is borrowing from um, Angela Stockman was, was one of our guests on the podcast and one of our collaborators um, work and, and it, it's like essay mapping. They're literally visually mapping out the structure of their writings. I find that um, high schoolers struggle with macro structure a lot. You know, they, they write in the order that ideas come to their brains because they don't have this repository of, of structure in terms of like how does one organize my writing. Um, so um, you just gave me the idea to have them look at each other's more. I have them do it individually and I look at it. But maybe if they if we were looking as a class, how are all of our peers organizing our essays? That might be an interesting act of, um, you know, looking at a class. Right, absolutely. Examples, and, you know? and getting them to work in pairs where they can kind of discuss and compare several different kind of examples is, is, you know, it's always good to get kids chatting about it, isn't it? And discussing and sharing ideas about these things. For sure. Um, so for, for anybody else who is uh, interested in uh, learning more about, about your work or um, exploring a little bit more about analogical reasoning, conceptual change and transfer, um, where would you recommend they go? Yeah. So um, I've got, so I have a website, Matthew, it's, which is matthewslocum.com. I'll, I'll, Give you the uh the link to that but um there's there's several really interesting papers that are that have done a great job of of distilling lots of the findings from analogical reasoning and and um apply and, and providing very useful guidelines for teachers so perhaps i can share those with you yeah i'll uh, put them in the show notes you can put it in the show notes and um we also run a, a seminar called analogical minds that anybody's welcome to come to as well and quite often it's Quite often we have um, education talks there as well. So um, anybody's sort of very welcome to come along and, and join in the discussion and those kind of, and um, yeah, it's always good to hear uh, educators and, you know, experience of, of analogies in the classroom and using analogies in the classroom. It's often, it's often um, a really rich body of knowledge that's lost when you're kind of in the lab doing experiments with uh, one one child. So it's, yeah, it's good to have the input of educators for sure. Awesome. I will, well, thank you so much for sharing. And again, I just want to highly shout out um, Matt's work. It, it is really fantastic stuff. And it's great to see uh, researchers who are, are really embedded in the actual science of learning, but are thinking about it very much within the context of education. So thanks so much for, uh, for joining me, Matt. And I really appreciate the dialogue. Oh, thank you. It's been, yeah, it's been really good. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Conceptually Speaking. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and are coming away with a stronger grasp of the concepts and mental models that help us understand our world. If you like this podcast, feel free to like, comment, or subscribe on your favorite platform.